0: As 2022 comes to an end, it's allowed us a distressingly intimate view of what climate change means in our everyday lives. From deadly heat waves, damaging hurricanes, and massive floods all across the country and the globe, our climate future is coming into, unfortunately, clearer view. Thankfully, a swelling number of us want to know, as we enter 2023, what can we learn from what we've seen, and what actions can we take in our own lives to tackle this massive, global, and as my guest calls it, wicked problem? I'm Dr. Neha Bartak, and you're listening to Health Discovered, a podcast by WebMD. I know I'm certainly looking for ways that I can change my behaviors in 2023. So we sat down with Dr. Anne Christine Duhame. She's a pediatric neurosurgeon and author of the new book, Minding the Climate, How Neuroscience Can Help Solve Our Environmental Crisis, to talk about some of the highest yield and evidence-based ways we can tackle climate change with changes in our individual behaviors but also changes needed at a societal level as we head into 2023. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and and what you do day to day? Yes, I am a pediatric neurosurgeon um, with 35 years of pediatric neurosurgery
1: experience. But um, about six or seven years ago, I had an opportunity to pivot toward the end of my career and grabbed that opportunity because, uh, after, after all those decades of taking care of and really finding it a privilege and, and a, a you know, wonderful opportunity to take care of kids with really life, or life-threatening crises oftentimes, and even if they weren't, the families going to see a neurosurgeon think they are. So it's, it's been a, a, an intense and rewarding career. But uh, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to start to pivot toward the end of my surgical career towards a focus on climate change and health and grabbed that opportunity because while I've been taking care of kids, um, I have been worried about their future and worried about this major problem that uh, I think is really one, if not the biggest uh, problems that we face together. And uh, so over the past few years, I've spent increasing amounts of time on the issue of climate change and climate change and health and what the things that I've learned in my career and my research career uh, might uh, contribute, if anything, to the discussion and to seeing how we can approach this very, very difficult problem uh, together. So I'm doing very little surgery at this point. I'm still taking care of patients. I'm still doing consults, but I really have transitioned to spending most of my time on the issue of climate change.
0: Wow. And can you describe a little bit about what that means. So is that more research? Is that more now dissemination where it's sort of like, these are all the lessons I've learned and this is what I need to, or what I, I feel is going to be most helpful in this conversation. What are some of the ways that you're sort of transitioning and pivoting? Sure. Well, um, one way is that our
1: hospital, Massachusetts General Hospital, uh, created a center Um, And it's called the Center for the Environment and Health. And it is run by clinicians, but it partners with administrators and and various sorts of experts in various fields like energy and um, waste management and so forth within the hospital setting, but also has outreach to uh, people in the community and nationally on the advocacy side. Uh, And we have many connections with experts at the university. So uh, I am an associate director of that center. Um, My job is to be involved in research and in publication. So to me, it's about what do we need to study still? And that uh, focus of study can be anything from how do we deliver healthcare more sustainably to how do we change behavior? How do we most effectively act as advocates from the perspective of clinicians in healthcare? and also, what are the health effects that uh, we will be seeing more now and increasingly in the future that we need to be prepared for? How do we, how do we deliver health care in a changing world? Um, and so uh, that's what the center focuses on, and that's my role within the center. In addition, I've taken on the job of um, associate editor for the Journal of Climate Change and Health, uh, which is... Uh, A nice segue for somebody like me who has worked in professional journals within my specialty for many years, and I can bring those skills to bear to try to um, hear and disseminate information from other voices around the world that are facing these kinds of problems uh, with respect to the intersection of climate change and health.
0: That is super exciting. I'm um, guest editing one of those issues coming up. So I will, I'm sure, be interfacing with you in some ways on on that maybe. Um, But very, very exciting. So as a lot of us are thinking about the new year, we're going into the new year. And we're thinking about the individual things that we can do. And a lot of people become very overwhelmed by this sort of idea of, well, what can I do in the face of this grand problem, this wicked problem, as we talked about? So what are your thoughts on sort of how, where, how can people kind of tackle this big issue and make it manageable in their lives? That's a terrific question
1: and one that I have faced myself. And in the work that I've done, I've had to answer that question in my own life. Um, Many of us are concerned about climate change. We accept its truth. We have gotten over the hurdles of, you know, maybe this isn't really as bad as people say it is. How do I... How do I judge the information that's coming at at me? That's often contradictory. So I had to go through this journey myself, uh, just like many other people in healthcare and other fields have had to do. Um, now not everybody has the opportunity that I had, which was to take a whole year off of my work. Um, I kept my lab going, but I, I really, uh, um, curtailed my clinical work uh, significantly. And I was in an environment where I had wonderful uh, partners and support that took that over so that I could spend a year trying to say, where do you start? How how does one who's concerned about this integrate this this cacophony of noise about climate change into your life and your decision-making? And um, so I, I was very, very lucky to get a fellowship that allowed me the opportunity to do this. And um, I started the work that led to the book that will be coming, that has just come out uh, this fall um, uh, called Minding the Climate. And what I learned, I mean, there's a million things i learned and I'm still learning from this, my own journey, uh, and I can share some of it with your listeners but I will say that it is not an easy task. And the way I have described it to others is it's doing homework. It's not something that's really fun for most people to say, gee, how can I, how can I solve climate change? How can I? You know, it's, it's unpleasant. It gives you a bad feeling. It is not like maybe I can redecorate my house. Maybe I can plan a vacation. Uh, maybe I can reach out to my old friends that I haven't heard from in a while. It's not that kind of a thing. It's like, ugh. There's this terrible problem. I'm worried. I'm worried about myself. I'm worried about my children. I'm worried about my patients. Uh, I'm worried about the future. And I don't get it. I don't understand. I know it's real, but I don't even know where to begin. That automatically is a barrier. It's no fun. It's not like whoa. I think I'll do this. This sounds like something really interesting. And and when you read about it, and when you start, and you start to take some steps, and you listen to a blog, or you. Pick up a book or you read something in the news, it just makes you feel bad by and large. There are a few human interest stories about little victories. Somebody found a new way to recycle plastic. Somebody found a new way to, you know, change the fishing lines so that they don't entangle so many whales. There may be little glimmers, but it doesn't take away from many of us, you know, that have the luxury of understanding science and its iterations because of our, our scientific training in medicine, for example, uh, it doesn't, um, it doesn't override that feeling of just being overwhelmed that you describe. So, um, I had to sort of figure out, uh, and I, I wanted to be pretty exacting. I wanted to use peer reviewed literature, uh, which is what we're trained in medicine to rely on. And, um, I had to figure out, you know, what is it in my own life? Where, where are my impacts? What behaviors have the biggest, um, you know, the biggest effect on this? And then what I had to learn, which was even more difficult, is that individual behavior, uh, how, how big a part does that play compared to things that are out of our control or more collective? And so here's the bottom line of what I learned uh, in a nutshell. I mean, there's a lot of detail here, and I'm going to pack it into sort of a short Uh, compendium, but basically one can argue about this and people do argue about it all the time. Uh, Even among experts, there's still a lot of argument, not about climate change and does it exist and is it getting worse, but what role does what, uh, what roles do different things play? So here are the conclusions I came to. Number one, about half the problem, that is about half the burden of carbon dioxide excess comes from things people do in their own lives, And about half, uh, you can argue the exact numbers, but for for purposes of just where to start, about half comes from things that individual people in your own kind of private life don't control. And people argue about which things make the difference. There are people who say, well, nothing I do in my own life can possibly make a difference because yes, while maybe half comes from things people do, not enough of us are gonna do them, so why should I do them? Um, On the other hand, things that you do in your own life, you can actually have control over and they are doable. And they're not like horrible, dramatic changes you have to make. So one can make, and people have made, experts have made the argument that actually things we do in our own lives can make a difference if enough of us can do them. So then if that's true, um, and I'll give you the other side of the coin in a moment, what kinds of things can you do? Well, Everybody focuses on what's visible. You focus on what you can see. And this is true when people talk about the hospital. The first thing they focus on is all the plastic and, and, and PPE that gets thrown out. They focus on what's right in front of you. And people focus on that in their own lives. And they focus on, well, I recycle. So is that, is that it? Well, it turns out that the behaviors that make the biggest difference vary from person to person with respect to how much carbon dioxide they contribute. Um, And you can do homework if you want and figure it out by typing in carbon calculator to your browser. You can put in a little bit of information about your life and you can figure out for yourself uh, and for your family what activities have the biggest impact. For most of us, on average, in wealthy countries like the United States, The biggest ones include your transportation, how you get around, Um, if you drive, what do you drive, how far do you drive, those sorts of things. Uh, Another big one is uh, if you live in your own house or you uh, rent an apartment, which you may not have as much control over, uh, but the energy that you use within your household um, for typically the biggest ones are heating, cooling, and uh, large energy appliances those are, those are some of the big ones. But one of the interesting things about that element is that about, uh, it's been estimated, about 30% of it is wasted. So there are things that you can do to decrease your waste. We can talk about the behavior changes necessary for that and why that may or may not be rewarding to people uh, <laughs> later on. Um, but another one is what you eat. And it turns out that changing to a more plant-based, we're not saying never have meat, but more heavily used use of plant-based foods is another way that the average person can make a significant impact. Um, Finally one that affects many professionals in the medical fields and others is air travel and here is a, a, a sort of a striking fact I came across and people will argue this people in the airline industry will argue this people in transportation you will get argument no matter what you say and no matter what behaviors you Uncover uh, in your own sphere. But one of the things I uncovered uh, in my exploration, and again, people can pick at these details, but as a general rule, in high income countries like the United States, we produce per capita for each of us about 20 tons of carbon dioxide annually. And around the globe, the average produced is about five tons. So in the high-income countries, we are way, way out of scale. In order to keep global temperature rises to 1.5 degrees, which is you know, one of the goals of the Paris Accord, for example, everybody in the world has to get down to 2.1 tons of carbon a year. So for us, that's 20 tons to 2.1 tons. That's a big change. Now, let's talk about air travel. One cross-country trip from New York to the West Coast and back, per capita, is two tons. That's your year's allotment. So people, you know, it's unrealistic to say don't travel, don't go anywhere, stop using airplanes. Uh, people will argue, well, yes, it's a lot of carbon, but if you drove, it would be more carbon, etc. People can make all kinds of arguments for every recommendation. However. If you cut out one trip, you don't really need to make. If you attend one meeting virtually, if you as a residency director interview your residents virtually instead of in person for all those air, air flights, those kinds of decisions can make a big difference. And then finally, uh, this? I'll stop after uh, the Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, please. Last one on the list. And this is a controversial one that some people will argue with vehemently on all kinds of religious, moral, other grounds is if you have a choice, have one less child. If you have two and you're thinking of a third, if you factor that decision, the climate effect decision of all the things we just talked about, that will be the biggest impact. Now that's a tough and controversial and multi-layered recommendation that some people in the climate world have made. Uh, it of course, uh, engender strong reactions, but, uh, but it is, uh, it is factually based. So I'm sorry that I uh, kept going when you wanted to ask your question, go right ahead.
0: I'll stop here. No, you know, I I think this is, you've answered pretty much every question I had written down. So this allows (laughs) us to get into the conversation, which I really appreciate. You know, there's so many important points you brought up. So number one, I think out of everything you said, there were several key elements to what we can think about in the year going forward in terms of what might be the biggest impact for us. So one is finding the data. So going to a carbon calculator that kind of helps you identify your, for your own personal situation, where are some of the places that you have room to make a difference? And then like really focusing on the things that give you the biggest bang for your buck. So the airline travel, the, Dietary changes, the transportation on a day to day basis, and then how we sort of the energy efficiency of our homes. So, I think that those are some key messages in terms of just kind of trying to wrap your head around a couple of things that you can look at and do. But, like you said, and you did not disappoint, all of these things are ugh, like, oh my God, what now I have to think about changing. Um, you know, you know, maybe that one less family trip as we're coming out of COVID and I haven't seen all of these people in so long, or I haven't gone to my camp, my conference in so long. So I think that it, it's really so key, like you said, to, to acknowledge that these are some sometimes difficult choices and difficult decisions, and it doesn't feel great because you're kind of, you're, you almost feels like you're taking something away So it's great to sort of think about how can we help people think of it as adding something back in. So if, so let's talk a little bit about that.
1: So I totally agree with everything you've said. And one of the focuses of the journey that became the book, uh, Minding the Climate, was how do people make decisions and how do we, do we have the flexibility, does it exist to change decisions that feel icky or ugh or unsatisfying or not rewarding to make them more rewarding. Are there, is the human brain able to do that? And the book really delves into what is known about difficult behavior change in the world in general, in, in you know, the context of public health or, or health-related changes, um, in the context of major cultural changes or upheavals, how, how do people change? And to answer that question, um, you know, you have to go back to how the brain is designed to make decisions. And so what we uh, dealt with uh, in the book was the evolution of the human decision-making apparatus, which is uh, influenced by the reward system, what we call the reward system. And the reward system is not the only way that we... uh, It's not the only part of decision-making, but it is a huge one. And people think about reward. They think about a prize or something, you know, that they get that's like extra. Or everybody thinks about a dopamine surge when you, you know, buy new shoes or whatever. But in fact, the reward system is not unique to humans. It was built on the evolutionary scaffold of, of creatures going back millions of years And it is a system that is designed to teach you what you need to know to survive. That's what it was designed for. It's not designed to make you feel good. It's designed for learning. And when something good happens, something beneficial for survival happens, that system kicks in to um, make that behavior more likely in the future to give you a survival advantage. So one of the things the book explores is how does that ultimately affect humans in terms of How do we think about money? How do we think about acquisition? How do we make decisions when we're competing against somebody? How do do social rewards affect us? How about other human rewards like novelty and um, the reward of agency? That is being able to do something most people in healthcare are highly rewarded by social rewards and by agency. I fixed this problem. I made this diagnosis. I took out this tumor. I, you know, did something and I can see the immediate effect. That's part of why the health professions are just so rewarding to us. And the book explores, uh, you know, how did it evolve for what purpose and how does it manifest itself in the human brain and how flexible is it? So, one of the main uh, findings uh, in behavior change is that if you need to do something that doesn't feel rewarding, substitute something that is rewarding for that behavior that you're giving up. So, for example, in addiction, um, it doesn't work to tell people just stop, just quit, just you know uh, uh, do something different in overeating. It doesn't help to just say, well, just don't have those calories. Uh, That doesn't work very well. And so what uh, does work is substituting something. So virtually every behavior change in the clinical realm involves substituting one reward for another. And the reward that is most often substituted is social reward. So why do addiction programs, 12-step addiction programs work? It's because you're substituting people telling you you're doing a good job, giving you emotional support, uh, celebrating a victory with you when you know you're sober for a certain length of time. And so it's substituting social reward for those things that you're giving up. It also helps to take you out of the context where habits, which are things that have become very ingrained in addiction and other difficult behaviors, kick in. So get people out of the uh, circumstance where those habits, those easy things that you've learned to do over and over again, uh, where they're less likely to occur. So let's translate that to environmental change. Um, One of the uh, pieces of research that I came across showed that people are much more likely to make their homes more energy efficient when it's in the context of something they're doing to make their homes nicer. So a renovation, you're redoing your kitchen, you're making a guest room out of your attic, That's an opportunity where when it becomes cheaper, more energy efficient, uh, you can save money by making your home more energy efficient and therefore spending less on heating and cooling. At the same time, you're ripping out your kitchen because you're putting in a new kitchen. People are multiple times more likely to do things that are pro-environmental in the setting of getting something that they want. Why? Because the whole package becomes rewarding it's kind of boring to just put in attic insulation on a Saturday, but you're renovating anyway. You're going to turn that into a cute little study or studio up there on that top floor. Well, now I might also put in some extra insulation, which isn't going to cost me much up front and I'm going to save a lot in my energy costs. So what's been shown is that people rarely take advantage of rebate programs, uh, that your, your town or your state may give you, um, uh, if they're just doing it for that purpose in isolation, but when you tag it along to a reward, I'm going to get something good out of this, people are more likely to do it. Uh, likewise, if you are going to change to public transportation to get to work, uh, if that public transportation is cheaper and you have less hassle, and guess what, I don't have to worry about parking and um you know, yes, it adds a little bit of time, but I can I can do my paperwork on the ride home and then I'm free when I'm home instead of having to take that stuff home to do it at night. If you can frame it as something more rewarding, um, or pin it to social rewards because you do it with a buddy who also says, Hey, let's let's, you know, stop for a such and such on the way home or whatever, just tie it to other rewards, which may be social, it may be um Uh, doing it with a like-minded person who's also worried about the environment, people are more likely to do those kinds of difficult things.
0: Yeah, that's great. This is sort of very much in line with One, my job as a primary care doc, where you're trying to sort of, I I love it when you go in with a patient and you're just trying to figure out the why for you. Let's figure out the why for you, because it might be the same solution. But for you, you may be doing it because you want to take a walk with a friend. And for another person, it may be because they want to reduce their carbon footprint. So it's really kind of walking in and figuring out, the same behavior, but why do you want to do it so that you can actually get it done? That brings you one step closer to the behavior change, I think. But it's really interesting because I do, like as this new year is coming, I'm just sort of thinking about how am I going to be that person that walks places instead of takes the car? Um, And there was a long period where I was that person. Um, And then, you know, you've got to get the kids to school and you're racing and you're rushing and you've got huge backpacks. So a lot of that stuff sort of starts to slip away. And it's exactly what you said. So I'm um, walking my daughter to daycare, which is about a mile walk. And I have some friends in my neighborhood who also are interested in just kind of taking a walk to go hang out. And so we've been going to walk my daughter to school and back. And that's a good two miles in the morning, which seems very much a necessary action. So it's not necessarily that I'm just frivolously spending time to go walk, but I am doing something. I feel like I've accomplished something and I'm doing it with friends. So I feel like that's very much in line with, with the kind of changes we're trying to encourage people to make in a way that's more palatable.
1: That's absolutely true. And it's also been shown that most things that are good for the climate uh, are also good for health. So, it's a really nice alignment for the health professions because even apart from the personal scale, uh, you know, it's clear that too much red meat isn't healthy and a more plant based diet is healthier for you. It's clear that um, auto transportation, like walking, is better for you. So, the health effects and the planet effects are in good alignment uh, almost across the board. Similarly, for things that we have less. Influence over in our personal lives, but might be involved with from an advocacy point of view or um, as medical professionals for um, the kinds of things that we do collectively. It is clear that fossil fuels cause pollution, uh, particulate matter that is terrible for health. And so, if we are concerned about our patients, then advocating collectively through our national organizations, through our hospital organizations, uh, through our uh, local associations or playing a role in advocacy by testifying at hearings uh, for your legislature, these align with health. So things that are better for health typically are better for the planet. And so there are goals that align and it's rewarding to uh, use your professional capacity to advocate for good health. So that's, is a sort of behavior change, uh, collective behavior change, that is also incredibly important in this, um, you know, desperate struggle we have to make things better before it gets uh, progressively worse and worse.
0: Right. And I think I also want to go back to sort of your opening um, where you mentioned children. Um, because again this is a wicked problem in my or something that I have always felt concerned about so we had two daughters very early on and then during covid we had a covid baby so this is our third child and very much was front and center in our mind that oh my god i've literally blown my carbon budget and i think that it's just like you said it's a very tough thing to wrap your head around but and we're not i don't think either of us are suggesting shame, blame in any of the things that we want to sort of shift towards or change. It's really just sort of thinking about what your situation is The you know, if it's important to you, that's fine and that's great. And if that's sort of your situation, but what can you do going forward? Never think of it in terms of, well, I've already, you know, this is the biggest thing that blows up people's behavior change sort of concepts and ideas or their ability to do it is just they something happens and they just feel like, well, it's it's over anyway. I've just, I've made the biggest mistake I can. So really just sort of mentally recovering from that and thinking, this is my situation and this is how I can move forward to make it better and how I can work with my community and how I can work at a higher level, like you said, through advocacy um, to also to make change that's positive. I think that's absolutely true. Um, one thing I would say
1: is that One of the things that the book emphasizes is that you cannot expect for pro-environmental decisions to feel as good or feel the same as other decisions. And, you know, to delve into a tricky topic that you just re-brought up, the one about uh, decisions about children. Decisions about children are very personal decisions. And um, you can't expect, for most people, the climate consequences to be predominant in that kind of a decision. Just like you can't expect climate decisions to be predominant in most of people's daily decisions, or even their decisions as leaders, as heads of companies, as middle managers, as educators, the kinds of things that we are rewarded for doing in those capacities which will affect the other half of the equation, the one that isn't about the carbon we produce in our personal lives. You are have learned um, to make your decisions based on the reward you're going to get in those job-related roles. And if you're a politician, you're rewarded for being reelected. You're rewarded for getting uh, campaign contributions. You're rewarded for all kinds of things. And the climate part of those decisions are going to seem very small and insignificant for most people in comparison to those more conventional rewards. Uh, If you run a business and you're making purchasing decisions, are you going to go with the more expensive thing that's more environmentally sound? or Are you going to try to get your budget balanced or keep it as favorable as possible so your shareholders look favorably on you? And what the conclusion of the book says is those pro-environmental leanings in a decision are simply... You have to accept they're simply not going to feel as important as those factors that you have conventionally relied on to make your decisions. You have to make them anyway. You have to have cognitive override because of your understanding of the magnitude and importance of this problem. And you have to recognize your gut check is going to be faulty. It's going to be faulty because evolution has not had a chance to catch up to this problem of climate change in decision-making in the way your brain makes decisions. It simply is too soon and too fast. And therefore you have to have self-discipline and say, I get it that this doesn't feel like it should be as important and getting a bonus and getting a new car and whatever feels more important and more compelling. I have to make that decision anyway. Because it needs to have a bigger footprint in my decision than it feels emotionally like it has. And that's just cognition overriding the fact that the way we make decisions does not take climate change into account, except on the cognitive level. And by substituting, as we said, rewards of social reinforcement by like-minded people. So if you are that CEO, you've got to have other CEOs that do it together and reinforce your decision. If you're an educator, you have to have other educators. If you're a healthcare professional, you have to have others in your fields that reinforce your decisions. That's the only way to up the level of
0: weight that that pro-environmental thing will have on your decision. I just appreciate you taking so much time to talk to us us today and really very specific things to kind of think about in your life. And I think one of the key takeaways is really pairing whatever change you want to make with that social sort of aspect so that it's easy it's just like you said you, things happen because they're fun and they're easy and you're doing it in a, when you're doing something in a group setting that's gen, generally where you can turn something that may be ugh to something that's more fun and easy because all like-minded folks in your sort of social setting are doing the same thing. Um, So I think that that's sort of a key piece of information that you shared with us in terms of just don't feel like you're doing this alone. There are people out there that have that same level of concern and are doing things in a joyful way to shift their lives and and you could be one of them. So I, I love that messaging. Anything else that I didn't ask you that you really feel like we should be thinking about or, or talking about? I think these are tough problems. We have to realize they're tough. And as you said,
1: uh, behavior change doesn't happen unless there's something good that comes out of it in your own heart. And that good can be worrying less about your, your the children in your life and their future. Uh, it can be a health benefit. It can be like-minded social reward. Uh, team it up with something else that's good and you will be more likely to make that change no matter what role you're making that change in your work life, your advocacy life, your personal
0: life. Uh, we all need to do everything we can because this is our future. Thank you so much for everything you are doing in your work life and your personal life. Really appreciate you also taking the time to talk to us about it. Thank you. For more information about Dr. Duhame and her work, check out her book, Minding the Climate, How Neuroscience Can Help Solve Our Environmental Crisis. Thanks for listening to Health Discover, a podcast by WebMD. I'm Dr. Neha Bhattuk, Chief Physician Editor for Health and Lifestyle Medicine. And I'm hoping we can all start making small changes each and every day for better health, a stable climate, and a cleaner planet. See you next time.